0: The following podcast contains adult themes and is suitable for mature audiences only. Hello everyone, and welcome back to Lyrics of Their Life, Episode 7, Part 2 of The Prince Story. In Part 1, we followed Prince's damaging and career-defining experiences as a child, up until his first contract signing as a 19-year-old. We then explored the highs and lows and controversial moments to the start of Prince's career, before coming to the incredible Purple Rain album, where we saw Prince reach the top of his game with a trifecta of masterpieces. If you haven't yet downloaded or listened to part 1, I highly recommend you check that out first and get caught up on the incredible story so far. So without further ado, let's get back into the second half of the Prince story. I'm your host Adam Hampton, and this is Lyrics of Their Life. It was during 1985 that Prince would start his own record label, calling it Paisley Park Records. Due to the success of Purple Rain as both a single, a film and an album, Prince would see this become a reality, with Warner Brothers funding and distributing for the label, and worked in partnership with Prince, who would now release his own music under his label other than prince's own material the label wouldn't see too much success other than minor successes with signed acts tevin campbell a revamped lineup of the time and sheila e after the success of the purple rain trilogy prince began to see his finances increasing rapidly with this money he would use part of it to win back his father's love who had attempted to reconnect with prince around this time the two reunited over a friendly game of pool but prince's father still lacked the affection prince always longed for not long after this prince would buy his father a brand new house and a new car prince's struggle to feel loved and accepted by his parents would become an ongoing struggle throughout his career and contribute to many relationship breakdowns of his own as well as his quest to find god despite prince's rise to fame and being surrounded by people It still made him feel lonely, and no woman would satisfy his every desire, with music and religion often getting in the way. On the 22nd of April, 1985, Prince would release his next album, Around the World in a Day. Planning for the album dates back before the thought of Purple Rain, and was finished in late December 1984, as Prince was still touring and releasing singles for Purple Rain around the world in a day would become another popular album with a new batch of hits and Prince reverting back to a more experimental style the album peaked at number one on the u.s billboard 200 where it sold just over 3 million copies and went two times platinum a big step back from his previous success with purple rain it also reached number one in sweden and on the dutch charts while making the top 10 in a further five countries including the uk selling a total of 5 million copies worldwide The album's title would live up to the sound of the songs, with the opening track Around the World in a Day itself appearing like a mixture of Indian music meets Western culture, while a range of exotic and world instruments would be utilised throughout the album. When speaking with Rolling Stone magazine in 1985, Prince explained that, I was trying to say something about looking inside oneself to find perfection. Perfection is in everyone, nobody's perfect, but they can be. We may never reach that, but it's better to strive than not. The album artwork features an interesting image, featuring the revolution on the front cover. Jill Jones, who was a backing singer for Prince and would eventually become a solo artist under Paisley Park Records, revealed Prince's haunting view of the album cover. As she says, The picture on Around the World in a Day, when he showed me the cover, he pointed out who everybody was. Jerome was the little old man with the cane. He told me Sheila was combined with Melvoin, with the violin. And he goes, And this is you. And it was the old maid crying, with a blues dress and these horrible boots. Why was I always crying? I cried in purple rain. I cried in graffiti bridge, before he cut it out. He always had me crying, and I'm crying on the front cover. And then he said, I'm going to know you until the very end of this. You're going to be here. And I said, Why aren't you in the picture? He said, I'm up the ladder. I'm gone. The first single from the album called Raspberry Beret would become Prince's next big hit. The fun psychedelic pop song reaching number two on the US Billboard Hot 100, just behind Duran Duran's A View to Kill, while also reaching number two in New Zealand and charting inside the top 20 in Australia and Canada. The track received loads of radio airtime and was backed by a great music video featuring Prince, this time in a blue suit with a white cloud pattern like on the album cover as he performs with the Revolution. He is given his famous white cloud guitar by the girl in the Raspberry Beret, with Prince again using his acting experience to add drama to the clip as he gives her a cheeky look. An animated filter is used throughout the clip that alters the colour of Prince's suit the video also featuring a particular get down low, shimmy and clap dance that would become somewhat of a craze with Prince fans. Raspberry Beret would include the use of a new instrument to Prince's music called the Middle Eastern finger cymbal that Prince would use on other tracks on the album such as a song titled Paisley Park. The finger cymbal giving the track that iconic clap and ting sound while the string instruments were also used along with a harmonica on the extended version of the track. Raspberry Beret was written by Prince back in 1982, but was reworked after he was inspired by a deleted scene from his own film where Prince as the kid had his first sexual experience with Apollonia in a barn. It is believed it was first written and inspired by his own first sexual experience. The quirky psychedelic pop song Paisley Park would become the second single released but only to the UK in late May of 1985. The track incorporates the Middle Eastern finger symbols quite regularly throughout the song, while a violin is also used. Paisley Park only just scraped into number 18 on the UK charts, and number 11 in Ireland, while reaching the top 40 in four other countries, including Australia and New Zealand. Paisley Park was written to represent Prince's happy place, where he can escape from the outside world, Although it is not yet a physical place and is just in his mind, or your heart, as the lyrics state. But one day, Paisley Park would in fact become a reality, just a year later. On the 10th of July 1985, Prince released the single, Pop Life, which would reach number 7 on the US Billboard Hot 100, becoming his 8th top 10 hit since Purple Rain's release. Pop Life struggled elsewhere on the charts, despite receiving radio airtime worldwide. Prince wrote the song detailing his frustration over the life of a celebrity, how ungrateful many celebrities are with what they have, the lengths some will go to just to increase their status, and all the traps that musicians in the industry tend to fall into. For example, lines like, What's the matter with your life? Is the poverty bringing you down? Is the mailman jerking you around? Did he put your million dollar check in someone else's box? And what you're putting in your nose, is that where all the money goes? The river of addiction flows. You think it's hot, but there won't be no water when the fire blows. An interesting B-side would accompany pop life called Hello, as Prince talks about the controversy surrounding his no-show to the We Are The World recording and how he provided the track for The Tears In Your Eyes, where he sings, I tried to tell them that I didn't want to sing, but I'd gladly write a song instead. They said okay, and everything was cool, till a camera tried to get in my bed. Prince goes on to talk about the nosy media and those who act as friends within the music industry. Clearly Prince did not have bad intentions when he declined to sing on the charity track and that he simply preferred to provide his own material, thinking it was a better gift to the cause than placing himself in perhaps a toxic and hostile environment. Prince would release his final single from the album, called America, during October of 1985, with the anti-war protest song extended version totalling 21 minutes in length. The track managed to break into the top 50 on the US Hot 100, but struggled elsewhere. In an MTV special on October 27th, 1985, Prince would perform a 10 minute version of the song in a special broadcast dedicated to the track and a lengthy interview that would become only his second televised interview in his career to date. Since his awkward American bandstand interview, During the interview, Prince was sat with a group of his biggest fans surrounding him as Prince provided his answers in relation to religion, his influences, his fashion, his upcoming film and the album and moments that shaped his career. Prince appears in a relaxed, soft-spoken and mellow manner at times, showing parts of his extroverted personality with a witty joke or two, before pulling back to his reserved guarded self.
1: One thing I'd like to say is that I don't live in a prison and I'm not afraid of anything. I haven't built any walls around myself. I am just like anyone else. I need love and water. And I don't really consider myself a superstar. I live in a small town, and I always will, because I can walk around and be me. That's all I want to be, and that's all I ever tried to be. Brown played big influence on my style uh, when I was about 10 years old my stepdad put me on the stage with him and I danced a little bit until the bodyguard took me off the reason why I like James Brown so much is on my way backstage on my way out I saw some of the finest dancing girls I've ever seen in my life you said you were surprised by so many people comparing you to Hendrix and you play guitar. Um, A lot had to do with uh, like I say, the color of my skin. That's not where it's at at all. It really isn't. Hendrix was very good but there'll never be another one like him and it would be a pity to try. I strive for originality in my work and hopefully it'll be perceived that way. Some people have criticized you for selling out to the white rock audience with Purple Rain and leaving your black listeners behind. How do you respond to that? Oh, come on. Come on. Cufflings like this cost money, okay? Let's be frank. Can we be frank? If we can't be nothing else, we might as well be frank, okay? Okay. So you. Seriously, um, I was brought up in a black and white world, and... Yes, black and white, night and day, rich and poor, black and white, and I listened to all kinds of music when I was young, and when I was younger I always said that one day I was going to play all kinds of music, and not be judged for the colour of my skin, but the quality of my work, and hopefully that will continue.
0: Prince had been working on his next album since April of 1985, and it was completed in early 1986. The album was called Parade, but the first single named KISS would be released beforehand on the 5th of February, 1986. KISS became a global hit, peaking at number one on five different US charts, including the Billboard Hot 100, number two in Australia, New Zealand and the Netherlands, along with reaching the top ten in eight other countries, including the UK. KISS would become a legendary pop hit that incorporates a range of experimental techniques, from Prince including pauses and breathy vocals. The track began as an acoustic guitar demo with lyrics and a melody and was given to a side project of bass player Brown Marks called Maserati. Bobby Z of the Revolution helped work on the track and Prince dug the funky beat Bobby had come up with deciding to retain it from Maserati and work on it further. Prince removed the bassline and their vocals and added his own in a falsetto and included a guitar break before adding it to the Parade album at the last minute. Prince had to fight to get it onto the album and released it as the first single with Warner Brothers finally agreeing to let it go ahead. Kiss received rave reviews, earning it mentions as one of the best songs of 1986. Prince uses his voice as an instrument in this funky track as he sings incredibly high and cries, moans and screams adding to the sexual nature of the song. The track had a unique stripped down vibe along with Prince's great breath work. Producers believe the track sounded more like a demo that had been recorded in a basement but Prince loved it for exactly that reason and he was right when it became a mega hit of the 80s. While Kiss was on top of the US charts Another song he had written originally for Patrice Russian was given to the Bangles called Manic Monday and would join him in second place on the Hot 100. Manic Monday rose to number one in South Africa and number two on the charts in five other countries including the UK and Germany while also making the top five in a further four countries including Australia and New Zealand becoming the biggest hit of the Bangles career yet. Prince also initially intended to write the song for his side project Apollonia 6, but decided to give it to the Bangles instead, offering it to them under the name Christopher Tracy, the same as his character from his upcoming film, Under the Cherry Moon. He had given them the track after liking the song Hero Takes a Fall from their debut album, and he took a liking to Bangles member, Susanna Hoffs, after seeing them support Cyndi Lauper, and he thought they would make the most of the track, which ultimately, they did. The arrangement of the vocals and instruments are almost exactly like a Prince song and you can hear his influence on the track throughout as the story is like a recount in the style much like Raspberry Beret. Prince's Ape Studio album Parade was released on the 31st of March 1986 and received critical acclaim where it was named Album of the Year by NME Magazine. Parade managed to reach the top 10 in 10 countries including the US, Australia, New Zealand and the UK while also charting at number one on the Dutch chart and sold a total of 2.5 million copies in the US alone with another 2 million copies sold worldwide bringing him a newfound popularity in Europe and a total of 5.5 million copies sold worldwide which would lead him to go on his first international tour the album steers away from the psychedelia and towards a funk, rock and pop combination during the Parade album era, Prince would alter his look once more by doing away with the black curly hair and cutting his hair short, and replacing the purple suits with a black crop top-like attire. The second single from the album was called "Mountains" and was released on the 7th of May, 1986. The song was a mixture of soul, gospel, funk, and pop that sounded almost like a mashup of a B.G.'s and Fleetwood Mac tune, sung to the style of Prince with his high falsetto vocals. It managed to reach number 23 in the US, but struggled worldwide, reaching its best position in the Netherlands at number 16. The song speaks of overcoming almost impossible obstacles, being the mountains, and refers to the famine in Africa and the importance of believing in God and religion. Parade would go on to be used as the soundtrack to Prince's second attempt at producing, directing and starring in his own film, calling it Under the Cherry Moon. The film was released on the 2nd of July 1986 and unfortunately was a massive flop compared to the success of the soundtrack Parade. Prince starred as a character called Christopher Tracy who rivals his cousin named Tricky for the love of a French lady, Mary Sharon, after they tried to swindle her. The film only made $10 at the box office and saw Prince be blasted by critics, earning him five gold Raspberry Awards for worst picture, director and actor along with others. Despite the disappointment of the film, Prince focused on the music instead, releasing Another Lover Hole in Your Head and Girls and Boys over the course of a month, with both receiving some form of success. In the UK, Girls and Boys reached number 11, while perhaps the most underrated and most beautiful track on the entire album was the closing track called Sometimes It Snows in April, with its mellow relaxing vocals from Prince calming backing vocals from the Revolution members Wendy and Lisa and the moving and emotive piano and acoustic guitar played throughout the track Prince sings about Christopher Tracy's memories as he recounts a story from the film Prince wanted the song to be as raw and emotional as possible as his sound engineer Suzanne Rogers says he didn't normally do that we lit candles the lights were dimmed Lisa was on piano with Wendy right next to her we wanted him to play it all he would do was the vocal We realised that the chair that Wendy was sitting on was really creaky. I went out to change it, and Prince said, No, leave it. I want it like that. It was done live, in a darkened room, quite stunning. The beautiful track is one of Prince's most underrated masterpieces of his career, and if you listen closely, you can hear the creaky chair featuring throughout. Prince toured the UK, Europe and Japan on the parade tour, this time leaving out the US. He played 20 shows with the Revolution Band and played three massive shows at Wembley in the UK for the first time. During this time, Prince would co-write and played guitar on Love Song with Madonna and played electric guitar for the opening of the track Like a Prayer while also contributing to the track's Keep It Together and Act of Contrition on guitar. When the parade tour concluded, Prince decided to disband the Revolution opting to be recognised once more as a solo performer. Wendy Melvoin and Lisa Coleman were let go to perform as a duo after they had earned a name for themselves while working under Prince. While Bobby Z was replaced by Sheila E as part of the band on percussion and bass player Brown Mark had quit, the only remaining member of the original Revolution was keyboard player Matt Fink, known as Dr. Fink. Prince would alter his lineup, bringing in Miko Weaver on guitar, Bonnie Boyer on keyboard, Levi Cesar Jr on bass. Dancer Kat Glover, Eric Leeds on saxophone and Atlanta Bliss on trumpet who had both been members since the start of the Parade album Before the revolution disbanded, Prince had been working on a number of other projects that involved setting up an album called Dream Factory by the revolution with Wendy and Lisa as main vocalists and starting his own alter egos career calling himself Camille and speeding up the vocals on the tracks to give his voice a female sound Warner Brothers later rejected these two projects, telling him he needed to work solely on his own album first, as his last two albums were not a financial success, despite being popular amongst critics and fans. He attempted to join all of his work from the two projects, and add some extra tracks to form an album called Crystal Ball, but Warner Brothers again rejected this, which led him to create a double album called Sign of the Times. With Warner Brothers placing so many restrictions on Prince all of a sudden, he became frustrated and grew tired of their control over his vision. In March of 1987, Prince would release his ninth studio album called Sign of the Times. Despite forming a new-look revolution band, he would again revert to his old methods of playing all the instruments on the album and producing it himself. The double album charted at number one in Switzerland and ranked in the top five in nine other countries, including the UK and the US the album would receive its highest amount of critical acclaim than any of his other albums of his entire career, literally scoring perfect marks across the board. Despite this, it managed to only sell over 5 million copies worldwide, which was solid but not groundbreaking, like the success of 1999 and Purple Rain. Hits from the album included the track Sign of the Times, which peaked at number one on the US R&B chart and number three on the Hot 100, while reaching the top ten in four other countries, including the UK and New Zealand. The funky track was released on the 18th of February, 1987, and featured a blues beat mixed in with a classical and modern twist. Prince would utilize the hottest new instrument on the scene at the time for the unique popping beat known as the Fairlight synthesizer. The lyrics speak of all the bleakness of society at the time as ronald reagan was in power in relation to aids drugs war politics and violence the title of the song and album comes from the name of a magazine for the seventh day adventist christians the song also makes a reference to the explosion of the challenger space shuttle that blew up upon takeoff in 1986 as prince sings it's silly no when a rocket ship explodes and everybody still wants to fly Much to Prince's surprise, he found it strange that all these everyday critical topics weren't more important than travelling into space. The song is dark and grim, but speaks the hard truths of life in America and the world as Prince delivers the lines. In France, a skinny man died of a big disease with a little name, as he refers to AIDS. He continues with, By chance his girlfriend came across the needle, and soon she did the same. At home there are 17-year-old boys and their idea of fun is being in a gang called the Disciples, high on crack and toting a machine gun. The line, Hurricane Annie ripped through the ceiling of a church and killed everyone inside, makes a reference to the song from Controversy called Annie Christian that was mentioned earlier as she is an antichrist. Prince continues with, you turn on the telly and every other story is telling you somebody died. Her sister killed her baby because she couldn't afford to feed it, and yet we're sending people to the moon. In September, my cousin tried reefer for the very first time. Now he's doing horse. It's June. With horse being the street name at the time for heroin, and reefer known quite commonly as a slang word for marijuana. Prince would also release If I Was Your Girlfriend during May of 1987 to a small amount of success in Europe as the song details a mature Prince speaking about his jealousy of Wendy Melvoin and the bond she has with her sister and Prince's now fiancé Susanna and wanting the same close bond. The song was quite interesting as Prince ponders if he was a female friend would the two connect on a different level. Prince would call upon his alter ego, Camille, pulling this track along with Housequake and Strange Relationship from the originally planned project that would feature his alter ego. It was followed by the release of a collaboration with Sheena Easton called You Got The Look on the 14th of July, 1987. It charted at number 2 on the US Hot 100, 8 in New Zealand and 11 in the UK and the Netherlands. You Got The Look was a funk rock track with use of an oversaturated guitar and experimental vocals used throughout with Prince altering his voice to sound like his alter-ego, Camille, once more. He appears to let loose in this track, as he is seen in the highly popular music video, strutting his stuff around with his peach-coloured cloud guitar and wearing a white fur coat with Easton looking like a rock star, making for a brilliant collaboration. Prince had previously written a song for her about the female anatomy like only Prince would, called Sugar Walls that saw it reach number 9 on the mainstream charts in the US and number 1 on the dance club charts there also. You Got The Look is a raunchy flirtatious song and features a hard-hitting drum beat and some great guitar riffs and a solo from Prince. Prince sings about dancing in a club when the lights that he calls the Ugly Lights come on at the end of the night to reveal if the person you had been dancing with was attractive or not, which in this case he claims the girl in question is naturally sexy and beautiful. The song is said to have been a difficult one to make, with one session lasting 48 hours straight, trying to master it, while it was originally just going to feature Prince, but he was a big fan of Easton's voice. The legendary guitarist Joe Satriani was a massive fan of the whole record, and said Prince broke all the rules with such a diverse range of styles, displaying just how talented he was. Long before abbreviated text became a thing, Prince was already using these for his track titles before it was popularised. Prince's estranged half-sister, Lorna, even unsuccessfully attempted to sue Prince as she claimed to have ridden the chorus and felt she should have been credited. Sheena Easton and Prince would write another track on the album titled La La La, He He He, which Sheena started to write as a harmless story about a dog chasing a cat up a tree, before Prince altered it into a sexually orientated metaphor for a man chasing after the affection of a woman another interesting track was starfish and coffee which talks about the real life person named cynthia rose that attended school with prince's girlfriend susanna melvoin susanna had told prince all about her that she was quirky strange but managed to be a standout in a large group of classmates prince could relate to the misunderstood cynthia and decided she would be great to write about many years later in 1997 prince would sing the song on an appearance on the popular muppets tv show On the 11th of September, 1987, Prince's personal home and recording studio called Paisley Park was officially opened in Chanhassen, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Construction had been carried out since 1986 and was fully completed in 1988, Prince keeping his promise to the people of Minneapolis that he will always remain a hometown boy. Prince intended to have musicians rent the recording spaces and use it for himself also to limit the need to travel elsewhere for recording. Paisley Park was designed by BOTO Design, and Prince himself, and contains two live music venues that are used as rehearsal space, two recording studios, a music video recording studio, and his living quarters. Each room is decorated with art and is quirky and colourful. The building consists of a large white structure that is surrounded by a grassed area, parking lot, and by a large mesh wire fence. Prince's most important room would have to be the vault, which is said to be a secure room where all of Prince's rare work is hidden. The total project costing Prince $10 million just to construct. Over the next few years, artists such as Madonna, The Fine Young Cannibals and Paula Abdul would record albums here. The complex, although impressive, would get quite lonely for Prince once all the recording artists had left and Prince was left to be by himself. The final single from Sign of the Times was called I Would Never Take the Place of Your Man and was released during November of 1987. It peaked at number 9 in New Zealand and 10 in the US. The pop rock tune was a great fun, bopping tune that rounded off the album well. It was originally written back in Prince's home studio in 1982 and was reworked for the potential Crystal Ball album. He sings about being up for a one-night stand with the woman in question but is not willing to take on the role of a stepfather and her responsibilities as she is a single mother. But without a doubt the song displays a level of maturity in his forever adapting songwriting. It would go on to become one of Prince's favourites to perform and remix. On this occasion, Prince and his new look lineup of Revolution Bearmates would venture to Europe again on a more extensive tour, this time leaving out the UK. The tour was a massive success in Europe, and Warner Brothers insisted Prince tours the US as well, but Prince refused as he was ready to begin working on his next album. Prince got to work on his next album, calling this one The Black Album, known as The Funk Bible, or simply The Album Without a Name, that would feature a completely black album cover, and Prince trying his hand at rap music for the first time in an attempt to bring back his black audience that had started to move away from his music. Although at the last minute, Prince had a spiritual epiphany that told him that the Black Album was evil, so he pulled it from shelves. Prince was not known to use illicit drugs at all, and lived a clean lifestyle, only drinking the occasional glass of red wine. But it is said that he was perhaps under the influence of ecstasy or MDMA on the night that he made the decision to bin his latest work. The story goes that on the 30th of November 1987, Prince ventured off to the club called Rupert's to test out the reaction by the public to his black album being played by the DJ. While he was here, he began to mingle with the crowd when he met a young poet and singer-songwriter by the name of Ingrid Chavez. After the two hit it off, they took off together to Paisley Park, where Prince and Ingrid hung out and got lost in deep conversation about the album, as Prince had his concerns over it already. Prince would often enjoy talking to those close to him about God, the meaning of life, and deep spiritual things. As Prince was stressed out about the situation, at some point Ingrid had pulled out some ecstasy when Prince allegedly took some. It has been suggested that Cat Glover, who was part of the revolution, supplied Ingrid with the drugs after scoring them off none other than Red Hot Chili Peppers frontman Anthony Caedus. As the night went on, Prince called up his sound engineer Suzanne Rogers to come and hang out with them. When Suzanne arrived, she was shocked to find Prince in a dark room lit up by candlelight before he appeared out of the darkness looking rather stoned and wide-eyed and seemed as though he was tripping. It is said that while in this state, Prince came across an evil entity named Spooky Electric who is a demonic alter ego that set out to corrupt himself and his alter ego Camille. He saw the letters God displayed in an open field and got messages depicting that releasing the album would be a grave mistake as he feared the thought of leaving this world if this was in fact his last album, if something were to happen to him and he worried about the negativity of the album affecting his young listeners. As it ticked over to the early hours of December 1st, 7 days away from release, Prince demanded that it be pulled from shelves and destroyed all 500,000 of them. Despite this, at least a 100 copies made it into the hands of Europeans, with several reaching the American public. A number of these original bootlegs would circulate, with Bono and Edge of the band U2 getting one and claiming it was a great album. It became the most sought after and expensive bootlegs of all time, fetching over $1,000 for the rare copy. Themes of the album speak of murder, violence, fetishes, masturbation, bondage and S&M. Despite Prince eventually turning to rap music during the 90s, he disses the wannabes in the rap industry and bags the genre in the song Dead On It. One particular track, titled Bob George, details the story of a crazed old man, gun-toting alter ego, taking on a manager by the name of Bob George, who is sleeping with his girl. While the track features Prince on vocals, who altered the sound of his voice to a demonic style and included growling sounds like a demon, which doesn't even sound like Prince. It includes gunfire and is extremely dark and experimental compared to previous works. The album was funk orientated and was likened to James Brown. It was unique in some of his most underrated works. Despite this, Prince returned to the studio and recorded a range of different songs, calling the replacement album Love Sexy, that served as the opposite of dark and evil and instead features an image of Prince naked sitting on a bed of flowers in a peaceful setting with religious and brighter themes. It was a spiritual awakening for Prince that would change everything for the star. Despite moving on from the Black album, Love Sexy did have two particular mentions of the evil entity known as Spooky Electric in the songs I Know and Positivity. Love Sexy would be released on the 10th of May, 1988, Unfortunately for Prince, his epiphany wouldn't have much of an impact on album sales, or good fortune, as Love Sexy only sold 750,000 copies, his least amount of sales since 1981, but now has climbed to 3 million copies sold. Critical reviews also declined in favour of Prince, compared to his last few albums, and saw Prince reach his lowest point of his career, with only one single named Alphabet Street becoming a successful hit and giving the album some form of life. Alphabet Street was released almost a month earlier on the 23rd of April 1988 and was a funky hip-hop and R&B track that also featured a rap from Revolution member Kat Glover. It peaked at number one in New Zealand and Norway and reached the top ten in eight other countries, including the US and the UK. The music video would also display a message about the Black Album, with those remaining bootlegs out there in the public's hands. As Prince wrote, Please don't buy the Black Album. I'm sorry. Love Sexy did include some decent tracks such as I Wish You Heaven and Glam Slam but lacked the creativeness and unique sound that the Black Album possessed. He rounded out the album with a track called Anastasia where he pledges his life and music to God. While the only track from the Black Album to qualify for Love Sexy was the song When Are In Love. Despite the album struggling to achieve relative success, The Love Sexy Tour would become another successful one for Prince, as he performed a total of 77 shows across the UK, Europe, Japan, and North America. Prince performed some of his best shows and wowed stadium and arena crowds from all over. The programme guide for the Love Sexy Tour contained an explanation for the whole Black Album fiasco, as it states Camille set out to silence his critics. No longer daring, his enemies laughed. No longer glam, His funk is half arsed. Tuesday came. Blue Tuesday. His canvas full. And lying on the table. Camille mustered all the hate that he was able. Hate for the ones who ever doubted his game. Hate for the ones who ever doubted his name. Tis nobody funkier. Let the black album fly. Spooky Electric was talking. Camille started to cry. Tricked. A fool he had been. In the lowest utmostest. He had allowed the dark side of him to create something evil. Two Nigs, United for West Compton, Camille and His Ego, Bob George, Why, Spooky Electric Must Die. When Prince returned from the Love Sexy tour, he began to plan a holiday, but those plans were put on hold as he started to work on his next album to feature as the soundtrack for the Batman film. Prince saw this as an opportunity to make a comeback commercially and was approached by Tim Burton to write songs for the film. Originally the tracks 1999 and Baby I'm a Star were being looked at to feature in the film but Prince decided to create a whole new album to accompany the film as a soundtrack instead. With a variety of songs he had previously written and ones he had written specifically for the film the Batman album peaked at number one in the UK and US and on the Dutch music chart while reaching the top five in seven countries including Australia and New Zealand, selling a total of 6.8 million copies worldwide. The single, Bat Dance, would become the most popular single released from the album, peaking at number one in four countries, including the US and New Zealand, while reaching the top five in seven other countries, including Australia and the UK. The Bat Dance became yet another dance craze, and the song was a perfect theme for promoting the film. Prince mixes quotes from the film as well as singing his own lines, while an organ features prominently throughout. Prince would be seen dressed as the Joker in parts of the music video and performs a great guitar solo to top it off. Other tracks included for the soundtrack such as Party Man, Scandalous, Trust, The Future, Electric Chair, Vicky Waiting and The Arms of Orion would also see some success across Australia, the US and Europe. The movie was also a huge success bringing in $250 million at the box office which ultimately increased the interest in the soundtrack. During this time, Prince was often seen with actress Kim Basinger, who played Vicky Vale in the Batman film, where the two were said to have had a brief intimate affair. They even recorded an album together titled Hollywood Affair that would remain unreleased and featured the raunchy track Color of Sex. But it didn't stop there as Prince would release an extended version of his Batman song Scandalous, rebranding it Scandalous Sex Suite that included a recording of an intimate session the two had while in the studio. After the success of the Batman soundtrack, Prince returned to tour performing a Greatest Hits tour called The Naked Tour. It highlighted the beginning of the end for the revolution as Sheila E., Bonnie Boyer and Cat Glover left the band. They were replaced by Rosie Gaines on keyboard, Michael Bland on drums and dancing trio known as the Game Boys that included Tony Mosley as a rapper, Damon Dixon as a dancer and Kirk Johnson as a percussionist. They had all appeared previously in an uncredited role in the film, Purple Rain, as a dance group. Prince, in his third revamp of the revolution, successfully toured Japan and Europe before Prince returned to Paisley Park to begin working on his 12th studio album, calling it Graffiti Bridge. During this time, Irish solo artist Sinead O'Connor released a track written by Prince called Nothing Compares to You. Prince had written the song for one of his side projects called The Family back in 1985 who included it on one of their albums but it was overlooked by the public. When Prince gave the song to Sinead, she put her own emotive vocals onto the track and turned it into a mega hit where it went to number one in a massive 18 countries including the US, the UK, Australia and Ireland. The sad power ballad would set Sinead up with one of the biggest hits of the 90s Apparently Prince wasn't a fan of Sinead's version and would later release a live version of himself and Rosie Gaines singing the song together in 1993. While in 2018 after his death, a rare original recording was released of the song originally intended to be more upbeat and with a generally more rock style, while the song appears to be about Prince yearning for a lost love. It has been suggested by many, including his sound engineer and close friend, Suzanne Rogers, that he wrote the song about his beloved housekeeper, Sandy Scipione, who had to step away from her duties as she was dealing with her own family issues. As Susan said, Sandy was the person who made sure he had his favourite beverage, she made sure the house was clean, and that there were fresh flowers on the piano, and that the socks and underwear were washed. Prince would also go on to write the 1991 hit, Love fire will be done for Martika, that reached number one in Australia and charted within the top ten in six countries, including the UK, US and New Zealand, while also writing a further three tracks for her album Martika's Kitchen. Prince would once again turn to his obsession and love for film by labelling Graffiti Bridge as the soundtrack and film sequel to Purple Rain. Although when Prince approached Warner Brothers for funding, they weren't confident that Prince could pull it off due to his past flop under the cherry moon. Prince managed to persuade Warner Brothers to fund the film, saying it would be as big as Purple Rain and feature actors from previous films such as The Time and Morris Day and his friend Ingrid Chavez. Prince released the first single called Thieves in the Temple for Graffiti Bridge on the 17th of July, 1990. Thieves in the Temple would become the album's only successful release, peaking at number 1 on the US R&B chart and reaching the top 10 in 7 other countries including the UK, New Zealand and the US Hot 100. Thieves in the Temple is a relaxing type track but with a darker meaning. Prince provides emotional vocals backed by a unique sound with echoing vocals and keyboard notes. Prince described writing Thieves in the Temple as an experience he wrote when angry and sad, which is a change from his usual upbeat fun, dance, funk tunes, and newfound positive religious sound. The song speaks about the deceit and lies in a relationship with the thieves being represented by the deceit. Prince stated about the song, I feel good most of the time, and I like to express that by writing from joy. I still do write from anger sometimes, like thieves in the temple, but I don't like to. It's not a place to live. Graffiti Bridge, the album, would be released on the 21st of August, 1990, and managed to reach number one on the UK album chart, while charting in the top ten in ten countries, including the US, Australia, and New Zealand. Despite its charting success, the album again sold poorly, selling just 2.5 million copies worldwide. The release of the album would be followed by the Graffiti Bridge film, which unfortunately lived up to Warner Brothers' fears. It was a commercial flop, only making $4.2 million at the box office. It was also met with harsh reviews from critics, as the plot was rather lacking, with it centering around the kid, played by Prince, battling for ownership with the time over a club named the Glam Slam, like the song featured on the Love Sexy album. The film was originally thought up as a musical that was set out to have Madonna starring in it until the two had a clash of egos over the types of shoes they were wearing and Madonna decided she didn't like the script. The two, despite having big egos and often throwing cheap shots at each other, actually were quite close. Soon after the album and film flopped, guitarist Miko Weaver and longtime keyboard player Dr. Matt Think left the band. Prince decided that the Revolution name was now tainted and needed a fresh name, so he rebranded his personal band's name as the New Power Generation, named after the track on Graffiti Bridge of the same name. Prince named Sonny T of the band, The Family, and Tony Barbarella as his newest members with the Games Boys trio, Rosie Gaines, Levi Cesa Jr., and Michael Bland of the Revolution, remaining on board. Prince got to work with the new power generation and involved his band heavily in the production of his latest album, eventually calling it Diamonds and Pearls. The album would feature a new batch of hits for Prince and bring about a revival for the struggling star. On the lead up to the release of his 13th studio album, Prince released the single Get Off on the 7th of June 1991. Prince would make a slight return to his sexually driven style of music for this album, Get Off would peak at number one on the US dance chart while managing to break into the top ten in ten countries, including Australia, the UK, and the Netherlands. The track was a mixture of Prince's earlier songs, Glam Slam, from the Love Sexy album, and Graffiti Bridge's Love Machine. Prince added a new chorus, a flute, guitar solo, and added his new look band Style to the track, and called it Get Off. He gave out the track to a handful of nightclubs, where the track was a huge hit with clubgoers. Due to its success in the nightclub scene, he released it as a commercial single, which paid off. In 1991, at the VMAs, Prince would perform the single in a yellow-netted full-body suit attire, but bearing his naked behind, shocking many onlookers and doing the brave and unthinkable, as only Prince would dare. On the 9th of September, 1991, Prince would make a return to the top of the US charts with his big hit, Cream. Cream went straight to number one in the US and charted in the top five in ten countries, including Australia, New Zealand and Canada. The cheeky and raunchy pop rock tune had a funky hook that enticed listeners of all musical tastes, with its playful distorted guitar riff that sounds dirty and erotic, matching the vocal delivery of Prince's lyrics perfectly. Just like the song Hints, Prince stated on MTV Unplugged that he wrote the song while masturbating and while standing in front of a mirror, while also being about persevering and patience in order to achieve success. The catchy track managed to hold off Brian Adams with Can't Stop This Thing We Started and the US lasting two weeks in the top spot. Despite the sexual content, it managed to receive mass airplay on radio and MTV as it was simply too catchy. The music video displaying Prince isn't afraid to test boundaries, as he is seen grinding and performing sexual manoeuvres with his dancers, while suggestively stroking the neck of his cloud guitar. The full-on video raised some eyebrows, but managed to stay on the air. After Prince's first two singles got him off to a great start, Prince released the album Diamonds and Pearls on the 1st of October 1991. It would be a huge return for Prince, selling around 7 million copies worldwide and charting at number 1 in Australia, where it went 4 times platinum, and number 1 on the US R&B chart, where it went 2 times platinum. It reached number 3 on the US Billboard 200 chart, while making it to the top 10 in a further 13 countries, including the UK, Japan and New Zealand. The album tends to lean back towards R&B and funk and CZ's his African American audience make their way back to him. The addition of Rosie Gaines on backing vocals on this album was also noticeable as she provides a great strong female gospel type voice that perfectly fits with Prince. The band are now predominantly of African American descent as Prince looked to move away from his original ideology of having a gender and racially diverse band. Prince's third single from the album called Insatiable charted at number three on the R&B charts but it would be the track Diamonds and Pearls that would become his next big hit. Released on the 25th of November 1991, the beautiful pop ballad would soar to number one on the US R&B chart and number three on the US Hot 100. It managed to chart well in New Zealand, Switzerland and Australia, becoming a popular radio hit at the time in a range of countries. Despite Prince's most recent themes of depicting sex and lust, Diamonds and Pearls would feature as a more loving song with the famous and catchy line, If I gave you Diamonds and Pearls. Would you be a happy boy or a girl? If I could, I would give you the world. But all I can do is just offer you my love. The loving ballad adding diversity and a variety to the album. Prince would utilise a range of instruments for this hit to create a transcendent, warming and relaxing vibe to the song. Prince would utilise an invention of his own called the Purple Axe. The Purple Axe is a portable synthesizer that sounds more like a guitar, and this is what can be heard throughout the song, as well as a trumpet, a distinctive descending keyboard pattern, bass, and the drum machine along with powerful support vocals from New Power Generation member Rosie Gaines. Gaines provides the perfect powerful vocals to accompany Prince's mellow tone used throughout the track, which would go on to be a classic and one of Prince's personal favorites. Although he would never release the true meaning of the lyrics, it is said to be about a combination of things, such as his love interest at the time, as well as the possibility of one day having children together. It was during the music video for Diamonds and Pearls that Prince's future wife would be the main dancer, as she frolics around Prince as he plays the grand piano after escaping the swarming media. Prince would wrap up his comeback album with the soulful R&B ballad Money Don't Matter Tonight, released on the 3rd of March of 1992. The track would reach its heights in the Netherlands, where it made the top 10, while also experiencing some success on the Australian, UK, New Zealand and US market, where it reached the top 20 and thereabouts. The song was written to shame the greedy, the gamblers and those who waste their money on pointless things, as the lyrics state, One more card and it's 22. Unlucky for him again. He never had respect for money, it's true. That's why he never wins. That's why he never ever has enough to treat his lady right. He just pushes her away in a huff and says, money don't matter tonight. Prince also explains the traps poor families, especially black Americans, fall into in order to gain more financial freedom, which basically leads them into lives of crime and gambling debts. Prince goes on to preach messages of love and peace and protest against war with a direct message to the rich and greedy, singing And you think you got it bad. Prince's main message, however, is to look after your own happiness and to try not to make life all about money as looking after your soul and enjoying life with your family is more important with the brilliant line Just when you think you've got more than enough that's when it all up and flies away. That's when you find out that you're better off making sure your soul's alright money didn't matter yesterday and it sure don't matter tonight. Prince would release the underrated track called Thunder as a UK only single where it reached number 28 on their charts. The song is said to be written about Prince's experience about pulling out of the black album and the epiphany he had surrounding the supposedly evil album. The track sounds like a ghostly dream mix of a rock and pop song as Prince details the experience singing Thunder Or through the night, promise to see Jesus in the morning light Take my hand, it'll be alright Come on save your soul tonight And the line Is this my sweet saviour, or the devil in disguise? Other notable tracks from the comeback album Such as a bluesy organ and electric guitar dominated track called Strollin The swinging soulful track, willing and able And Live for Love, that speaks of Prince's sympathy For soldiers and the life of a man who joins the Air Force With Prince returning to form with his latest hit album, he would take to the road to tour Japan, the UK, Europe, and for the first time in his career, Prince travelled to Australia to perform 14 shows, with a total of 50 shows worldwide taking place. Prince got to work on his next album, titled With an Unpronounceable Symbol, upon returning from tour, He had previously come up with the album in 1990, and had been working on it after his brush with the evil side, with The Black Album. The album artwork consisted of a specific symbol that is a combination of both the male and female gender symbols. Prince designed the symbol and would often wear it as a necklace, naming it the unpronounceable symbol and copyrighted it under the name Love Symbol 2. Therefore, the album was given the name Love Symbol. Prince originally intended the album to contain a large number of intervals, known as segues, between each song to play out like a film and an album in one. The plot being an Egyptian princess played by his girlfriend, Mati Garcia, who falls in love with the rock star, Prince, and entrusts him with an ancient religious artifact known as the Three Chains of Turin, or Gold, like the song title on the album. This was during her escape from Seven Assassins in relation to the song title, Seven. Many other songs throughout the album would have linked the story together, but the segues had been taken out as they were too lengthy which left the story to be quite unfinished and confusing. In what was a brave and unique way to produce an album, Prince had a vision, but he felt Warner Brothers were again holding him back from reaching his true creative potential. The Love Symbol album was released on the 13th of October, 1992 and would peak at number one in the UK, Australia, and Austria, while charting in the top five in the US, New Zealand, and three other countries. Prince again adapted his style to keep up with the hip-hop and R&B style that had began to rise in the early 90s, while incorporating his funk, soul and pop style into his music. Prince would receive mixed to positive reviews for Love Symbol, and it would later be referred to as one of his last well-rounded albums, but only selling 3 million copies worldwide. It would accompany a fourth movie of Prince's titled Three Chains of Gold, like the song that features on the album, but again it would be a disappointing flop, And didn't hit cinemas instead going straight to vhs prince would release a total of five singles from the album from june 30th 1992 to the 3rd of april 1993. tony m of the power generation would do plenty of rapping on this album as prince started to go down the hip-hop and r&b road Sexy MF would reach the top 5 in 6 other countries, including the UK, Australia and the Netherlands, but crashed in the US only reaching number 66 on the Billboard Hot 100. Sexy MF was followed by My Name Is Prince, which was a minor hit reaching the top 10 in 8 countries, including Australia, New Zealand, the Netherlands, the UK and Italy where it went to number 2, and slumping to 36 on the US Hot 100. My name is Prince talks about Prince being the one and only of his kind and not wanting to reach the top anymore. As he has found God and being king like Michael Jackson doesn't interest him as he believes it's all an overrated dream. As he sings the lines. My name is Prince and I am funky. My name is Prince, the one and only. And the line. My name is Prince, I don't want to be king because I've seen the top and it's just a dream. Big cars and women. And fancy clothes will save your face but it won't save your soul I'm here to tell you that there's a better way would our Lord be happy if he came today I ain't saying I'm better no better than you Tony M revealed about the track that stuff like you must become a prince before your king anyway those were direct shots over the bow at Michael Jackson we were going in it's an angry track and we came hard The third single, titled Seven, would become his only top 10 hit from the album in the U.S., reaching number seven coincidentally enough on the Hot 100. The final singles Morning Papers and Damn You would find some minor success, but wouldn't break into the mainstream. One song titled The Sacrifice of Victor, would also make a reference and pay tribute to Prince's childhood hero, Bernadette Anderson, who was the mother of his friend Andre Simone, who took Prince in when he had nowhere to go, and had a lasting effect on him as he sings Bernadette's a lady, and she told me whatever you do son, a little discipline is what you need. After Prince had struggled in recent years to sell consistently, in 1993, Warner Brothers decided on Prince's behalf to release a three-part album called The Hits One, The Hits 2 and The Hits and B-Sides during September of 1993. It included all of the hits barring the now outdated Bat Dance, two new tracks called Peach and Pink Kashmir, along with a range of B-Sides from over the years and previously unreleased tracks, including Prince's own version of Nothing Compares to You. It was around this time that Prince's feud with Warner Brothers would reach new heights, with the feud becoming heavily publicised in the media. Prince intended on releasing the debut album for the new power generation called Gold Nigger, but Warner Brothers were against this release and opted to release the hits and b-sides of Prince instead, which frustrated him. Prince showed little interest in putting out the three-part compilation album and was paid by Warner Brothers to stay out of the album's production. Prince started to become agitated and wanted so badly to release his logjam of music that Warner Brothers had prevented him from releasing in the past. Prince had loads of projects and albums worth of material dating back to the mid-80s that had been stockpiling in his vault and was ready for release. But Warner Brothers were heavily dictating what Prince would put out and when. The compilation would sell just 3.1 million copies over time, but Prince could hardly be bothered to promote it, hence the low amount of sales. Prince continued on to push for his music to be released quicker, with Warner Brothers continuing to resist. On Prince's birthday, the 7th of June 1993, As a form of protest, Prince would do the strange and unthinkable and change his name from Prince to the unpronounceable love symbol itself. As Prince's new name was literally a symbol and no one knew what to call him, he would then be referred to by the media as the symbol, the artist and the artist formerly known as. As things got messy between Prince and his overbearing record label, Prince began releasing a number of albums as a means to free himself from his contract obligations with Warner Brothers. The Black Album, formerly known to be The Evil Folk Bible, was re-released during 1994 with intentionally little to no promotion as a means of pushing it out of the way in general to get it out of the hands of the public, with it eventually going out of print altogether. During the same year, Prince's next album full of unheard material, called Come, was released. Prince fought hard to have new material released but Warner Brothers were concerned that Prince would oversaturate the market. Prince was persistent, and the highly provocative and raunchy album, Come, was released. The overall tone of Come is dark and experimental, perhaps suggesting Prince's mental health at the time with dealing with his overbearing record label and purposely rushing albums out the door in order to break free. Both albums flopped badly and sold poorly, confirming Warner Brothers' fears, but Prince didn't mind. Come would sell a measly 1.2 million copies worldwide. Despite Cum being a genuinely disappointing album, it did include some interesting tracks. One song in particular, titled Papa, is quite confronting, as Prince speaks out about abuse and violence against children, with many believing he wrote from his own experiences at the hands of his father. As Prince sings, There was one September day that Papa worked too hard. First he crucified every dandelion out in the yard, then he screamed at Baby twice for throwing rocks at passing cars. Baby didn't listen, so like a priceless work of art, he got snatched up by his papa, who then opened up the closet door and pushed the four-year-old down onto the closet floor. Baby cried, I'm sorry, I won't do it no more. Papa said, yeah, I know, that's what this here's for. Prince sings a chorus which details a young boy being smacked by his father numerous times before continuing to describe the aftermath. Towards the end of the song, Prince delivers a message that further pushes the point that the song was in fact related to himself. As he says, Don't abuse children, or else they'll turn out like me. Fair to partly crazy, deep down we're all the same. Every single one of us knows some kind of pain. In the middle of all that's crazy, this one fact still remains. If you love somebody, your life won't be in vain. And there's always a rainbow at the end of every rain. The rest of the album was quite unsuccessful, being too graphic for radio, with tracks as blatantly named such as Pheromone, Loose and Orgasm, it was a bit too much for some. Around this time, Prince and Warner Brothers got involved in a legal battle over artistic and financial control over Prince's output, with Warner wanting to make his output more sporadic. During the lawsuit process, Prince began famously appearing in public at events, on music videos and live performances with the word slave written on the right side of his face. Prince's explanation for this was that he felt trapped, controlled and enslaved under Warner Brothers and their restrictions on him from reaching his creative potential. He would deliver a number of speeches in this time about the restrictions record labels place on artists. The money they take from your hard work and to warn others not to let them walk all over you prince said about the situation people think i'm a crazy fool for writing slave on my face but if i can't do what i want to do what am i when you stop a man from dreaming he becomes a slave that's where i was i don't own prince's music if you don't own your masters your master owns you warner brothers would then move to shut down paisley park records Prince's label would be No More, which further fuelled Prince's anger for the label. He would initiate his own record label that was out of Warner Brothers' hands, called The New Power Generation, and would be run by Trevor Guy. The New Power Generation label would release Prince's side projects for a number of years after he had moved on from his contract with Warner. Prince would next release his album called The Beautiful Experience EP and The Versace Experience as a prelude to The Gold Experience album. It featured a range of alternative versions of songs to feature on the Gold Experience, but wasn't very popular. On the 26th of September, 1995, the Gold Experience was released. It managed to sell just 500,000 copies in the US, and only reached number 4 in the UK and 6 in the US, selling a total of just 1.1 million copies worldwide. The gold experience was salvaged by the single The Most Beautiful Girl in the World, which would become Prince's final number one hit in six countries, including Australia, New Zealand and the UK, while charting within the top five in nine countries, including the US and Canada. As well as his last number one in the UK, it would also be his first. Prince promoted the album and track back in 1994 when he put an advertisement out in magazines and newspapers with a blurry image of himself and text that read Eligible Bachelor seeks the most beautiful girl in the world to spend holidays with. The mellow pop ballad was a massive final stand for Prince proving he still had it in this simply beautiful track that would become the perfect wedding song for many around the world. Prince was told by Warner Brothers that he didn't have another hit song in him Prince faced the challenge head-on and produced this beautiful romantic ballad about his soon-to-be wife, Mati Garcia, becoming his only number one hit under the unpronounced symbol brand and sadly his last of his career. Mati would later reproduce the song, calling it the most beautiful boy in the world, for a debut 1996 album called Child of the Sun. Unfortunately, Mati's album was both a critical and commercial flop. Prince had dated and been linked to a range of celebrities over the years, including actress Kim Basinger, former revolution percussionist Sheila E, actress and dancer Carmen Electra, and just before he met Mati, was singer and actress Nona Gay. But it would be Mati Garcia that he would fall the hardest for. Prince first laid eyes on Mati outside of his concert in Frankfurt, Germany, while she was with her mother. He looked over to his bandmate Rosie Gaines and he said, there's my future wife. He was simply mesmerised by her beauty. Later in 1990, Prince had met Mati Garcia for the first time back when she was invited backstage after Prince had seen an audition tape of her as a belly dancer and chose her to become one of his dancers. Age didn't seem to be too much of an issue for the two as Mati was just 16 at the time and would soon be accepted into Prince's dance group after graduating high school in Germany at age 18 and the two became friends. Prince and his entourage helped Mati get settled into her own apartment in Minneapolis. With Prince, despite being attracted to her, he was respectful. The two began a sexual relationship when Mati was 19, and the two soon fell in love. After four years officially together, Prince aged 37 and Mati aged 22 got married on Valentine's Day on the 14th of February, 1996. The wedding was small, with only close family and friends in attendance. The two were inseparable, and the chemistry was clearly there, as the two appeared in many music videos together. But it was back to business as usual, as Prince would have somewhat of a success with the track I Hate You from The Gold Experience. The song was originally written about his experience with Carmen Electra, and how she broke his heart when he found her with another man. While his final single, Gold, would reach number 10 in the UK, which was a highly underrated tune with a mystical rhythm. Prince personally loved the song and had touted it as the next Purple Rain before its release, but it would unfortunately not live up to these expectations. Another underrated song on the album was the track Dolphin that also received some airplay across the US. The song speaks of reincarnation and actually has a darker, more serious meaning behind the gentle melody of the song as Prince sings about being a slave to his record label as he sings the line If I came back as a dolphin, would you listen to me then? Would you let me be your friend would you let me in you can cut off all my fins but to your ways i will not bend i'll die before i let you tell me how to swim and i'll come back again as a dolphin the album itself received positive reviews with critics but the album sales did not meet the record company's needs which prince blamed the record label for their lack of promotion for both this album and his earlier album love symbol Prince would then release a soundtrack for the film, *Girl 6, featuring a range of his music from the past few years and a couple of previously unreleased tracks that would make its way to number 15 on the R&B US album chart. The film though wasn't too successful, which ultimately affected album sales. Prince, or the artist formerly known as, would mark his final album under Warner Brothers in 1996 with Chaos and Disorder. ...finally reaching his contract obligation to produce a certain amount of albums to set him free. The album would become Prince's lowest in regards to sales of his career to date. Prince refused to promote the album and already had one foot out the door... ...selling just 450,000 copies worldwide. It featured a more rock oriented sound to the album and had its only slight success... ...with the song about racial diversity called The Same December. But arguably, the most underrated track on the album was the song Dinner with Dolores. After breaking free of his 18-year contract obligations with Warner Brothers, Prince was free to negotiate elsewhere and signed a distribution deal with EMI while working under his own label, New Power Generation Records. Prince, however, would go by his unpronounced symbol name due to the perception that Warner Brothers owned his name Prince. He would leave his name behind for a further four years, believing it set him free and it was a new beginning for him. The artist formerly known as, would also put a stop to musicians renting his rehearsal and recording space at Paisley Park, instead just keeping it running for himself and other close associates. He also became very strict on copyright and condemned those that used samples and lip-synced in their songs. Prince released his next album, Emancipation, during November 1996, that acted as a celebration of freedom from the chains that binded him as the album artwork depicts. It would include three discs and became the first time Prince had ever performed covers of songs written by other artists such as I Can't Make You Love Me, One of Us by Joanne Osborne, and Betcha by Golly Wow that managed to reach number 18 in Australia. Prince had always expressed his interest in paying respects to covers and wanting to include them on albums but had always been instructed not to by Warner. Prince would also collaborate with quirky and artistic British singer-songwriter Kate Bush on the track My Computer. While the track's titles Somebody's Somebody, The Love We Make and Face Down were some of his most underrated originals on the album. Despite the album selling just 1.4 million copies, it was a slight improvement and was an enjoyable freeing experience for Prince. Throughout the music videos for the album, Prince is seen with Slave Written on his face, while his wife, Mati Garcia, much like the theme of the album that surrounds her and the impending birth of Prince and Mati's first child together. The album features a number of great mellow and peaceful songs, as Prince seems to be settling down. The great track Holly River is a perfect example of this, and it is an underrated gem of the album. It details his choice in marrying Mati and spiritual enlightenment. The album was a special one in a time full of emotions for Prince as he penned a number of tracks about his love and relationship with his wife Matthi and their unborn child. Including the track Let's Have a Baby while the song Sex in the Summer features their unborn child's heartbeat in place of the drums. As he said, What we did was take a microphone and place it on Mati's stomach and move it around with the gel till we got the right spot. And then you know, you start to hear that and then we put the drums around that. Prince said about the impending birth of his son, It really grounds you. It makes you realise that things you thought were important aren't really. That's what it meant for me. Eight months after Prince and Mati were married, their baby boy named Amir Gregory Nelson was born on the 16th of October of 1996, only one month before the album's release. But in devastating circumstances, just six days after birth, Amir Gregory Passed away due to the condition called Pfeiffer syndrome, type 2, that is a rare skull disease that results in abnormalities to the skull. Throughout the pregnancy, Matee could sense something was wrong, but Prince refused to seek medical advice and instead trusted his faith in God. Just a week after the death of Amir, Prince and Matee appeared on The Oprah Winfrey Show and pretended like Amir was alive and healthy. After Oprah explained that fans were concerned due to media reports, saying their baby was not well. Oprah asked the question, What is the status of your baby? To which Prince replied, Our family exists. We're just beginning it. We've got many kids to have. A long way to go. Prince and Mati were clearly upset and trying to hold back the tears. On this particular Oprah special, Prince would even give Oprah a tour of the playroom Prince and Mati had recently decorated and filled with toys at Paisley Park. Prince then said to Oprah, It's all good. Never mind what you hear. Prince was too scared to tell the world the truth and too distraught to process the reality of their son's death. Prince and Matisse's marriage drastically fell apart over the next few years. They soon afterward revealed the truth with Matisse stating We believed he was going to come back, that souls come back. We didn't want to acknowledge he was gone. Prince and his wife tried once more but after a miscarriage the continuous grief and loss drove a wedge between the two prince's keyboard player morris hayes at the time explained prince is one of them kind of dudes he's an all-in kind of cat so even before the baby was born prince had basically built a shrine to the baby this big giant playground with swings all this infrastructure was put in place like he had a back room that got converted into his pink and blue baby lair. he just shifted into that mode he basically was going to take a few months off he also added he was devastated It's like he never had any foresight that anything could ever be a problem. And I think that not being able to do anything and to be helpless was a real thing for him to come to terms with. Everything he did, he already saw it done. That kid was already out and playing with kids. He already saw it. And for it to not turn out that way was a very difficult thing. I think it really humbled him. Soon after this traumatic and sad time... Friends of the Star noticed a rapid change in Prince as he started to become even more reclusive and depressed. Prince soon approached funk bass guitarist, and idol of his, Larry Graham, for advice in 1997. Prince asked Larry about his Jehovah Witness faith and what it entailed. Prince was searching for biblical answers and was struggling after the loss of his son and his marriage breaking down. Despite Prince already being religious and being raised in a Seventh Day Adventist household, Prince became invested in the Jehovah Way, who would soon be baptised. Prince began to explore spirituality and his faith, which provided Prince with the strength to carry on. It was the hope he needed in such a tough time for the would-be father. In 1998, Prince would release a number of albums containing his bootlegs, old material and projects, as well as new material included inside the Crystal Ball 5-disc box set including The Truth, which was full of acoustic tracks, and the New Power Generations instrumentalist Kama Sutra album, while Warner Brothers released a collection of Prince's unreleased tracks on The Vault, Old Friends for Sale, in 1999. The Truth was arguably the best of these albums, as it was a different raw side of Prince that we hadn't seen much of before. It included a more bluesy sound to the tracks, with some incredible acoustic guitar work, with the opening track, The Truth, being a great way to open the album. Despite this, these albums would sell rather lowly. In 1999, Prince signed with Arista Records, releasing his next album, Rave Unto the Joy Fantastic, where he collaborated with Gwen Stefani, Chuck D, Annie DeFranco, Sheryl Crow and Eve, and often appeared wearing a blue shiny jumpsuit with short dreadlocks or cornrows. From this album onwards, Prince would struggle to reclaim the hold he once had on the charts, and his ability to write hits and connect with a wider audience started to diminish, with The Greatest Romance Ever Sold being the only track to reach the charts at number 23 on the US R&B chart. The album would sell just 800,000 copies, In order to promote his latest album, Prince would step out of his comfort zone to promote his latest album by appearing in a range of interviews on MTV and on CNN with Larry King in one of his best and most open interviews to ever be seen. As he speaks about living in Spain from time to time, life growing up in Minneapolis, the public sphere of 1999 ticking over to the new millennium and most interestingly how he came up with his symbolic name, Finding God and what it means for him.
2: You are, you would admit yourself, an unusual personality. Uh, depends. I mean, well, let's say you're different.
3: Um, as compared to what? As compared
2: to most people in, let's say, show business, you're an unusual person. Mm-hmm. Most people don't get famous with one name and then change it, mm-hmm. right? Would
3: you say? What's the story of that, by the way? Um, well, I um, uh, I had searched deep within my heart and spirit and I wanted to, uh, Uh, make a change and move to a new plateau in my life. And one of the ways in which I did that was to change my name. It sort of divorced me from the past and all the hang-ups that go along with it. So about the highest risk one would think
2: someone who gets famous would take is to drop the name that got them
3: famous? Well, um, that was one of the things that I dealt with, is that uh, I really searched deep within to... uh, find out the answer to whether fame was most important to me or uh, my spiritual well-being, and I chose the latter. Was it difficult
2: Um, to not be what you had become known as? uh, You mean... I think, well, let's say a famous... The only other famous person I know who did this was Cassius Clay. He's a dear friend, and he changed his name to Muhammad Ali as heavyweight champion of the world. It was incredible to change your name. That was due to a faith belief. But he wasn't selling records. He was in the ring, and as long as he won, it sold. You, though, a person in show business, is almost dependent on recognition. Mm. You stop
3: being prince. Well, I. that's a good point. I pretty much wanted to be dependent upon uh, God. And when you get the inner calling to do something and you know it, that you're being inspired by God, you pretty much... Uh, I uh, know you better answer that call or suffer the consequences.
2: you think you. this was God-inspired as well? I, I do believe, yes. Why then did you choose the artist formerly known as?
3: Well, I didn't choose that. That was chosen. Get chosen
2: for you. Uh, yeah, pretty what much. What would you have chosen? Uh, I... I I would, mean, did you think of a name? What is your name at birth? My name at birth was Prince Rogers Nelson. Yeah. So, did you think of Nelson? N- no. Rogers. <laughs> Were you thinking of a name? No, it didn't come to me like that. So how did the artist
3: formerly known as come about? Well, that came up through people's uh, uh, problem with, mainly the the media's problem with not having a pronunciation for the symbol. So they had to come up with something, I guess. So
2: so the artist formerly known as is a media invention. Yes, sir. Not your invention. No, sir. You're a symbol. Okay, how do you promote a symbol?
3: Well, um, what we found is uh, throughout, the, throughout the world, if you hold this up and show it to people, what they think of, they will say Prince. Obviously. Yeah. So, so you obviously
2: made it famous. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Could you tell us what it signifies? Well, me. <laughs> no, but I mean how you chose it. You designed it? Um, it's sort of uh,
3: come about over time. Uh, I've uh, always morphed the female and the male symbol together.
0: Towards the end of 1999, Prince and his wife sadly decided to get a divorce after their relationship diminished over the years. Prince would have the house they shared bulldozed to the ground as he couldn't stand the sight of it any longer. By the end of their relationship, Mati had ended up resenting the man who was once her best friend. Prince became both cold and withdrawn and began having mood swings while things got so bad for Mati that she attempted to overdose only for a pet dog to save her life by scratching at her. The loss and toll of the last few years becoming too much and contributed to the end of their marriage. His personality changed drastically as music and God were his two passions and nothing could get in the way of them. He started to become further reclusive and even threatened those who swore, took drugs, or even smoked cigarettes on tour, that they would be fired. Due to his newfound Jehovah ways, he also began handing out New Testament Bibles at live shows, and he even did his fair share of door knocking, spreading the word of his God. Larry Graham soon joined the band, and couldn't stand the lyrics pertaining to sexual innuendo, so he would leave the stage during these songs. In order to make him feel more comfortable, and as Prince had turned a new leaf, he axed all explicit and sexually driven songs from his set list, and refused to play them for many years to come. As Prince stated, There's certain songs I don't play anymore, just like there's certain words I don't say anymore. It's not me anymore. There's no more envelope to push. I pushed it off the table. It's on the floor. Let's move forward now. Later on in 2003, Prince would be baptised in a local hall in Minneapolis, fully converting to the Jehovah faith. The album The Rainbow Children, released in 2001, centred heavily around his newfound faith and religion. In order to follow his faith, Prince gave up swearing and cursing, eating meat, drinking alcohol and from performing his racy songs, such as Darling Nikki and Cream. Prince even went as far as introducing a swear jar on tour and in the recording studio. Prince was quoted as saying, If I can stop swearing, everybody can stop swearing. According to his keyboard player, Morris Hayes, even Prince would occasionally add to the swear jar or swear bucket that they nicknamed the cuss bucket. Many of those close to him were confused about his sudden change of lifestyle and found him to be slightly hypocritical due to singing about sex, incest, masturbation and other sinful categories and then turning to God and acting like it never happened. But there are also those that believed it was the constant battle between good and evil for him and he was embarrassed by his past and wanted to be forgiven for his sins as he got older and more wise. Prince would often say in interviews that he always looked forward and didn't like to look into the past. Despite some believing the change was a good thing, former childhood friend and member of the time, Morris Day, believes he became all about his faith and was often trying to convert people to the Jehovah way, including himself. Morris would have a falling out with him over this and would reconnect shortly before Prince's death. On the 16th of May, 2000, Prince was finally free of all obligations to Warner and Chappelle Music Group, as they no longer own the Prince name. In a press conference held that day, Prince announced that he would also retire the unpronounceable symbol as his name and reclaim his stage and birth name, Prince. Prince would however continue to use the love symbol for his album artwork and in the shape of his guitar that had been so iconic in the years beforehand. Following this announcement, Prince would release his next 8 albums from 2000 to 2004 via his internet subscription service called New Power Generation Online and later New Power Generation Music Club. These albums included The Remixed, Raven to the Joy Fantastic, The Rainbow Children, One Night Alone, Expectation, Dream Factory, C Note, The Chocolate Invasion, News, and The Slaughterhouse. The album The Rainbow Children was a heavily Christian and religious album that only saw 320,000 copies sold and unfortunately turned many of his fans away with the drastic change of style from the once explicit, daring and controversial Prince to the Prince that found God and peace. Not only did Prince release his albums via the internet subscription source, But he decided to engage more with his fans by releasing pre-concert soundchecks and invitations for fans to come to his Paisley Park studios for tours, discussions with Prince and interviews. Prince intended that one day Paisley Park would be opened as a public space for the general public to enjoy, similar to Elvis Presley's Graceland. Prince wasn't great at using the internet, but was fascinated by releasing his albums this way and getting involved in online chat rooms, with fans discussing his own work with them. Both Prince and Matthi would move on to new relationships, with Prince dating Anata Lewis before meeting and quickly marrying Manuela Testaloni in a private ceremony after meeting each other earlier that year at a charity event held by Prince. The two would live in between Manuela's home in Toronto, Canada and Paisley Park. Prince would also mourn the death of his father, John Nelson, at the age of 85 in 2001 and would dedicate a cover version of Joni Mitchell's, A Case of You, to his father on his album One Night Alone. Prince's album One Night Alone would include the cooing and ambient singing of his pet doves, divinity and majesty, as he loves the sound of their voices. The following year in 2002, Prince's mother, Maddie De Shaw passed away at the age of 68. In 2004, Prince performed at the Grammys in an outstanding duet with Beyonce as they performed Baby I'm a Star, Let's Go Crazy, Purple Rain, and Beyonce's Crazy in Love as they stole the show. Just one month later, Prince would be honoured by being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Prince performed a number of his own hits at the induction, while also paying tribute to the late Beatle, George Harrison, who was also inducted. Prince played While My Guitar Gently Weeps in his honour, performing a mesmerising two-minute guitar solo towards the end of the song, alongside Tom Petty. Please,
3: please be seated. All praise and thanks to the Most High, Jehovah. Thank you, Alicia, Andre, Big Boy. Much respect to y'all. Thank you, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. This is definitely an honor. Uh, I don't want to take up too much time, but I would just like to say this. When I first started out in uh, this music industry, I was most concerned with freedom, Uh, freedom to produce, uh, freedom to uh, play all the instruments on my records freedom to say anything I wanted to. And after much negotiation, Warner Brothers Records granted me that freedom, and I thanked them for that. (laughs) Without any real spiritual mentors other than artists, whose records I admired, uh, Larry Graham uh, being one of them, uh, I embarked on a journey more fascinating than I could have ever imagined. But a word to the wise, without real spiritual mentoring, too much freedom can lead to the soul's decay. And a word to the young artist. a real friend or mentor is not on your payroll. A real friend and mentor, a real friend and mentor, cares for your soul as much as they do their own. This world and its wicked system will become harder and harder to deal with without a real friend and a mentor. And I wish all of you the best on this fascinating journey. It ain't over. Peace.
0: Prince would hide away from the public eye, with limited appearances, opting to work on his music behind the walls of Paisley Park instead. In April of 2004, Prince released his next album called Musicology, through a one-time deal with Columbia Records. The album became Prince's most successful commercial album since Diamonds and Pearls over 13 years ago with Prince including the album with every purchase to a Prince concert for his musicology tour, which ultimately bumped charting positions and sales up in the US. It managed to go two times platinum in the US and gold in the UK and charting at number three in both countries, while making the top ten in nine other countries including Switzerland and Norway and selling almost three million copies worldwide. The single sharing the same name as the album Musicology would also reach the top 30 in nine countries, including Australia and Belgium where it was most popular. The album included a range of solid tracks including Call My Name and Cinnamon Girl, which was a heavily religious song. 2 years later, on the 21st of March 2006, Prince released his 31st studio album under a one-time deal with Universal Studios named 3121 named after the number of his LA rental apartment at the time of recording. Prince managed to return to the top of the charts where it went to number 1 in the US and Switzerland, while charting in the top 10 in a further 8 countries, including the UK. Although album sales would decline, Prince was enjoying having control over what he puts out and when. The album included the song Black Sweat that managed to reach its highest position in Belgium at number 14. Once again, he removed the bass from the song, just like on when Doves Cry and Kiss. While the tracks TMO, Carrozon, and Fury were also having some charting success worldwide. In 2006, Prince was voted the world's sexiest vegetarian and he was known for his work against cruelty to animals, including wool production. In May of 2006, Prince would go through his second divorce after five years with Manuela. Manuela and Prince's first wife, Mati, would become close friends, bonding over their shared experiences years later. Many believed this worsened Prince's state, but he would turn his focus fully to creating music, and he never stopped as a form of distraction. During 2006, Prince would rent a Hollywood mansion that belonged to Carlos Boozer, who played basketball for the NBA team, the Utah Jazz, at the time. Prince altered the property to suit his needs against the wishes of Boozer and changed the front gate to represent the Prince logo or symbol. He changed the master bedroom into a hair salon and changed a number of other parts of the property. Eventually Boozer filed a lawsuit against Prince for these alterations, landing Prince with the title of worst renter ever. On the 4th of February 2007, Prince would deliver one of the most memorable moments of his career at the 41st NFL Super Bowl in Miami, Florida. The heavens had opened up that evening as the stage got blanketed in beautiful rain. As a remix version of Queen's We Will Rock You played, fireworks were set off with a loud bang and blanketed the stage before Prince emerges from beneath. The stage designed like his love symbol and Prince was dressed in a blue suit and straddling his guitar. Prince opens with the line, Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to get through this thing called life, before breaking into Let's Go Crazy. Prince performs Baby I'm a Star with a full marching band, before breaking into the Creedence Clearwater Revival classic, Proud Mary. A version of All Along the Watchtower, and a fantastic cover of the Foo Fighters Best of You. As the rain continues to pour down on a drenched Prince, he swaps guitars for his famous purple love symbol guitar before eerily performing Purple Rain in the downpour. A huge white blanket is erected that shows Prince's silhouette as he plays his solo before the crowd join in on yelling out Prince's famous cries. Prince was visibly in awe of the moment, and it was one no one will ever forget. Prince would continue pumping out album after album like only he knew how to, In 2007, Prince released the semi-successful Planet Earth that charted at number 3 on the Billboard 200, releasing it free to the public in the papers in the UK in order to spread his music to the world. This was followed by the 2009 double album Lotus Flower and MPL Sound that would peak inside the top 5 at number 2 on the Billboard chart in the US. Lotus Flower was quite an underrated gem that featured a cover version of Crimson and Clover that was simply breathtaking and arguably rivals the original. The double album even includes the debut album from Bria Valente titled Elixir. Bria worked under Prince for a number of years as his backup dancer before becoming his girlfriend in 2010 after he dated another one of his dancers, Misty Copeland. Bria was transformed into a Jehovah Witness while with Prince and would become his last serious girlfriend after the pair split up in 2013. Both albums received mixed to positive reviews and sold over 500,000 copies. In 2008, Prince had undergone double hip replacement surgery after years of overuse on his joints through performing over the years. Prince had been living in pain for over three years and his fast-paced energetic performances had finally caught up with him, with his repetitive jumping from speakers and offstage causing the issue. Prince would now require the use of a walking cane to help him get around, but instead of making it appear as his downfall, Prince embraced his cane, adding a model of a frog on top of the cane, while rocking it at various award nights, and went out in public. Although, from this point on, Prince began taking a variety of strong pain medications, such as opioids, and would over time become addicted to them, and he started to go against his Jehovah ways by abusing the painkillers. This would continue over the course of the next eight years. On the 25th of June, 2009, Prince's greatest rival, Michael Jackson, was sadly pronounced dead. The news shook the world, and Prince. Although the two were rivals of the music industry, Prince was incredibly upset when Michael died. Prince was in his Paisley Park studio rehearsing at the time when he heard of the news. He sent his band members home and retreated to his room for several days to recover, with the hard-hitting reality sinking in. Prince also realised that sometimes their competitiveness got in the way of their relationship and that he realised this could soon be himself, which hit Prince hard. Prince and Michael had always respected each other's music, but success and egos got in the way of their friendship. Prince's biggest rival, and the man that pushed him to be bigger and better, was gone. When Prince first arrived on the music scene, Jackson had already proven himself as a star, but feared Prince had come to take his throne. It is said that Jackson once asked the B.G.'s Barry Gibb if he thought Prince was better than him, displaying MJ's insecurities. Throughout their careers the two would make snarky comments in the media and in songs aimed at each other and things heated up after the We Are The World drama. Prince would reveal in an interview with comedian Chris Rock that Prince was set to sing Michael Jackson's hit Bad as a duet but Prince declined. As Prince stated in the 1997 interview the first line of that song is your butt is mine. I'm saying who's going to sing that to whom because you sure ain't singing it to me and I sure ain't singing it to you. So right there, we've got a problem. Bobby Z weighed in on the potential collaboration, stating, I don't know what Michael was thinking, but he just didn't know the fierceness of Prince. I know that he didn't want any part of that. You don't come to Prince with a song like, Who's bad in this song, Prince or Michael? It's going to be Prince. It's not going to be Michael. He loved Michael Jackson. He was just at a level now where he was competing. He was a fierce competitor. He wasn't going to do anything that looked like they were buddies. He was going to win, and he won with the movie, he won with Purple Rain. It is said that Michael Jackson was influenced by Prince's song 1999, as he loved the big opening to the song, and thought it would sound great to have something similar on Thriller. The two would always attempt to outdo each other, but in the end, the two still highly respected each other's work, despite being critical at times. Former sound engineer of Prince's, David Z, revealed the time Prince challenged Michael to a match of table tennis while they were both recording at the same LA studio in order for Prince to show off his skills. Prince apparently said, You want me to slam it? As David Z describes the match, as he says, Michael drops his paddle and holds his hands up in front of his face so the ball won't hit him. Michael walks out with his bodyguard and Prince starts strutting around like a rooster. Before Prince hilariously said, did you see that? He played like Helen Keller. Prince was an extremely competitive person and would have loved to get one up on his rival. In 2010, Prince received a Lifetime Achievement Award at the BET Awards Ceremony for his contribution to music. Soon after, Prince released the album 2010 to mixed and negative reviews from critics and failed to chart. From 2010 to 2012, Prince would go on tour with the Welcome to America, America Euro, Canada, Australia and Chicago tours. Much of Prince's later years were spent within the compound of Paisley Park and the surrounding area of Chanhassen. Prince's former keyboard player and longest serving band member, Morris Hayes, recalls the time Prince wanted to purchase a lock from the local hardware store. So Morris drove him there in his van as he describes the hilarious story. As he says, Okay Prince, you stay in the car, so I'm picking up stuff in the aisles. I look over, he just cruises by in a turtleneck sweater and his fuzzy boots. And people are looking like, Oh my god, Prince is in the hardware store. He comes and finds me and he's got a handful of crap, like can we buy this? Then Morris says, what did you do with the car? He says, it's out there, it's just running. I said, Prince you can't leave the car running, somebody could just steal the car. Luckily the car was still there when they ventured back out. Despite Prince having his personal assistance, he was a more than capable driver and would often be seen driving around town in his red 2011 Lincoln MKT over the years he would own a collection of stylish classic cars including a 1985 cadillac limousine a 1999 plymouth prowler a 1964 book wildcat a 1993 ford thunderbird a 1995 jeep grand cherokee a 1997 lincoln town car a 2010 mercedes-benz a purple 2004 cadillac xlr roadster a 2006 bentley a 1991 BMW 850i, a 1960s Buick Electra 225, a 1984 BMW 633 CS, his 1995 Prevo Tour and Party Bus, and of course, the famous purple Honda Matic CM400A that features in the Purple Rain era. The bike was complete with Prince's love symbol and was used again in graffiti bridge, but was repainted black and gold. Not only was Prince a car enthusiast, but he was also a known lover of BMX and mountain bikes. He was often seen riding around the streets of Chanhassen or around the grounds of Paisley Park, enjoying a bike ride which he did daily. He also enjoyed roller skating as another of his favourite pastimes. In the later years, Prince began to open up Paisley Park to a lot more people, often inviting musicians and fans to come and check the place out as long as they didn't take pictures. Hardcore Prince fan Corey Tolofson revealed that, in the 90s, he wouldn't walk anywhere, even within Paisley Park, without a bodyguard. And then I'd say around 2010, I'm not going to say he stopped caring, he stopped being over the top. He just didn't give a shit. He just walked around and he talked to people. He was always smiling. He'd bring people in. We'd have listening sessions at Paisley. Many described the inside of Paisley Park as amazing, with murals and incredible artwork and architecture throughout, and that the place often smelled of lavender, as Prince loved having candles often burning. Prince was very accommodating, and would often get his personal chef to cook for those that he invited. He could really only cook pancakes and eggs himself, and he never really ate anyway, as he saw it as a distraction, and that it took up too much valuable time that could be spent creating. This notion was much the same with sleeping, as Prince often struggled to do so with his overactive mind, and would often venture down to his personal studio to record or write. It was fitting that his bedroom was tiny compared to the rest of Paisley Park. Music and God were his two main passions at this point in time, up until his death. Prince was known by those close to him as a hilarious practical joker, often calling up friends and colleagues on an unknown number, and speaking in another language before cracking up laughing. Many believe Paisley Park was like a prison, but to Prince it was his creative sanctuary and his life was very much still normal, as he revealed in a 1996 interview where he said, When people say about me that I live in a prison and don't go anywhere, it's just not true. I go to the store, I go to the video store, I go to ballets, movies, the park, I live like anybody else, but I play music every day. Prince would often rent out the whole local cinema to watch premieres of new films as he was an avid movie lover and enjoyed comedies and animated films such as Kung Fu Panda, Pee Wee Herman and his favourite movie of all time that would often be playing at Paisley Park, Finding Nemo. Prince also stated that he doesn't believe in the concept of time and when questioned on his youthful appearance, in his later years he replied, But I don't believe in time. I don't count. When you count, it ages you. I count time different. There's no such thing as time, really, once you study the orbits of the planets. Prince amazed many as how you saw him on stage was how he was in person. He would always be wearing purple suits or dressed like he was ready to perform. Just like he was back in 1985 when he walloped Eddie Murphy in a game of basketball dressed like he was ready to perform. He often wore shoes with high heels to increase his stature and wore suits with no pockets so he was always giving out tips as he had nowhere to put his spare change. While he came across as arrogant at times, he was very much a caring and accommodating person. He always had time to mentor young and upcoming artists and would often browse YouTube looking for the next big star. Prince, despite being quiet and shy, could also be extremely confident and was most definitely aware of his own talent. He always stuck to what he wanted to be as an artist and almost never conformed to the constraints of the music industry. In late 2012, Prince started a new band called Three Eyed Girl and started to appear wearing spectacles with three lenses appearing like Prince had three eyes while sporting a permed afro. Together they would play a more heavier rock style with Prince appearing much like Jimi Hendrix. The band consisted of Prince on vocals and guitar and American drummer Hannah Welton a Danish bass guitar player by the name Ida Christine Nielsen and Canadian guitarist Donna Grantis with all three of course being females and naming the band after one of his own songs from the album The Truth. From 2012 to 2013 Prince would release a plethora of singles while also going on the Live Out Loud tour. He would also receive the Billboard Icon Award in 2013. Throughout the years, Prince would perform one-off performances with former Revolution members Wendy Melvoin and Lisa Coleman and former drummer Bobby Z. In 2014, Prince would re-sign with Warner Brothers once again after mending their relationship another 18 years on. Under Warner, he released Plectrum Electrum under the band name Three Eyed Girl while releasing his own album Artificial Age during 2014, both of which achieved moderate success worldwide, but sales were at an all-time low with Plectrum Electrum selling just 190,000 copies and Artificial Age with 350,000. On the track Breakdown on the Artificial Age album, Prince speaks of regretting the things he had done in relation to partying and seems to be repenting for his sins as he fears the end is perhaps getting closer. During November 2014, Prince made his first live appearance on TV since 2006 on Saturday Night Live. He also showed he was letting loose by appearing in the TV show The New Girl with Zoe Deschanel. Due to his appearance, the show ratings increased significantly with the song fall in love tonight being sampled on the episode where Prince provides Zoe's character Jess with relationship advice in 2015 Prince would again use the internet subscription company called Tidal to sell his albums online releasing his final two albums called hit and run phase 1 and 2 to again moderate success combining for just 300,000 sales worldwide during 2016 Prince was beginning to be questioned over the state of his mental and physical health by the media and began speculating over whether Prince was ill or not. He diffused these rumours by going on a world tour of Australia, the USA and Canada on his piano and microphone tour. Prince was performing his latest shows in Oakland, California where he was last seen at a public event at an NBA game between the Golden State Warriors and the Oklahoma City Thunder on the 3rd of March 2016. Prince appeared healthy, although he was wearing shades as he sat with model and backup dancer Damaris Lewis, who had been close friends with Prince since 2010. Soon after this, Prince performed shows in Canada before flying to Atlanta, Georgia in the US, where he was expected to perform a number of shows at the Fox Theatre. The first two on April 7th, however, were cancelled due to Prince coming down with a bad case of the flu. Despite Prince battling the flu, he would perform just seven days later, on the 14th of April, where he gave it his all, even performing four encores. Prince would head back on his private jet that evening, where he passed out just hours after the show. The situation rapidly turning into an emergency, as Prince was unconscious and couldn't be revived. The jet was forced to make an emergency landing at 1.30am in the town of Moline, Illinois. Luckily, Prince managed to pull through, and it was declared that he had overdosed on fentanyl, lignocaine, and the synthetic drug U4770, which are all forms of opioids and strong painkillers. Prince was given the drug Narcan to block the opioids, and he was told he had to remain in hospital for 24 hours before he could leave, as he was severely dehydrated. But due to the small hospital having no available private room for Prince, he ignored the doctor's advice and left just after three hours of being at the hospital. When media caught on about the overdose, Prince told them it was due to the flu. But just the next day on the Saturday, the 16th of April, Prince tweeted out a flyer and announced he would be holding a small thank you concert and dance party for his fans at Paisley Park. Those attending witnessed Prince performing just like he always had, and he seemed in high spirits as he jokingly played chopsticks on the piano, although some began to worry about his frailty. One particular attendee noting that Prince said, Wait a few days before you waste any prayers. On the Wednesday night, the 20th of April, Prince was seen for the last time in public outside his local Walgreens pharmacy, just up the road from Paisley Park. He was seen pacing up and down the car park, looking frustrated and upset. The following day, a young medical student by the name of Andrew Cornfield had been sent by his father, Howard Cornfield, who was a medical specialist from California, to check on his patient, Prince. Howard had been looking after Prince in relation to his addiction to pain medication and how he can manage the pain. Andrew was sent to devise their latest plan on dealing with Prince's pain medication addiction and Prince had been enrolled to attend rehab for this addiction in the coming weeks to months. When Andrew entered the Paisley Park building, he found Prince laying unconscious next to the elevator that leads to his living quarters and studio. Prince was not breathing, and he had been there for at least six hours when Andrew found him. He quickly notified the emergency services, and they arrived at 9.45am. Unfortunately, it was too late, and after attempting to resuscitate the star, Prince was officially pronounced dead at 10.07am on the 21st of April, 2016. The legendary icon that had inspired so many was gone at the age of 57.
2: CNN breaking news. And CNN has now confirmed that the artist Prince is dead. Uh, we're just getting confirmation earlier. We knew there was a police investigation underway at his estate the studio in Minnesota. Now, official word. We're getting the word now that Prince has died. Good evening. Fans around the world have been stunned by the sudden death of the singer and musician known simply as Prince. Remembered as a revolutionary with a -a one-of-a-kind style, there are many unanswered questions tonight about what exactly killed the
0: 57-year-old. Over a month later, on June 2nd, the autopsy report found that Prince had died of an accidental fentanyl overdose. Investigators had seized a large supply of Watson 853, which was believed to be a medication for pain relief. Although upon further medical examination, It was discovered that the drugs were counterfeits and were most likely purchased on the black market and contained deadly toxicity levels of fentanyl. It is believed that only 2 milligrams of fentanyl can kill a human and is 50 times more potent than heroin. Experts in the media speculated and weighed in on the superstars death, believing that Prince had asked for the drugs, or that he had taken the drugs thinking that they were simply pain medication and was unaware of the hidden ingredient. To this day, it has never been concluded how or why Prince's medication contained this deadly dose of fentanyl and where the counterfeit drugs came from.
4: Good morning. My name is Mark Metz and I'm the Carver County Attorney. The investigation has determined the following. On April 21, 2016, Prince died from an overdose of fentanyl. Fentanyl is a very powerful synthetic opioid that is 30 to 50 times more potent than heroin and 50 to 100 times more more potent than morphine. The evidence demonstrates that Prince thought he was taking Vicodin and not fentanyl. Vicodin is an opioid painkiller containing hydrocodone and acetaminophen. Vicodin is used to manage severe pain. The evidence reveals that Prince had experienced significant pain for a number of years and had been taking pain medication for a number of years. Fifteen of the prescription pills that had the Watson 853 imprint on it Were located in Prince's dressing room. Another 64 and a half of these pills were located inside a Bayer bottle and 20 and a half pills were located inside a leave bottle on the nightstand next to Prince's bed. Another loose pill was located in Prince's bed. Prince did not die from a Vicodin or Percocet overdose. The toxicology report is clear that Prince died from an overdose of fentanyl. The evidence suggests that Prince took counterfeit Vicodin containing fentanyl on or about April 21, 2016. Unfortunately, the subject counterfeit Vicodin pills are an exact imitation of real Vicodin pills, but the counterfeit pills contain the potentially deadly opioid fentanyl. Nothing in the evidence suggests that Prince knowingly ingested fentanyl. In addition, there is no evidence that any person associated with Prince knew Prince. (coughs) possessed any counterfeit pills containing fentanyl. In all likelihood, Prince had no idea he was taking a counterfeit pill that could kill him. Others around Prince also likely did not know that the pills were counterfeit containing fentanyl. There is no evidence that the pill or pills that actually killed Prince were prescribed by a doctor. There is also no evidence to suggest any other sinister motive, intent, or conspiracy to murder Prince. The evidence suggests that Prince had long suffered significant pain, became addicted to pain medications, but took efforts to protect his privacy. To the ultimate question I reviewed, which is who provided the counterfeit Vicodin with fentanyl to Prince. Despite the intensive law enforcement investigation, there is no reliable evidence showing how Prince obtained the counterfeit Vicodin laced with fentanyl or who else may have had a role in delivering the counterfeit Vicodin to Prince. Despite their extensive efforts, law enforcement was unable to determine the source of the counterfeit Vicodin laced with fentanyl. Therefore, without probable cause and no identified suspect, the Carver County Attorney's Office cannot file any criminal charges involving the death of Prince.
0: Upon hearing of Prince's death, fans and media flocked to Paisley Park to pay their respects and lay flowers, purple balloons and pictures along the fence that surrounds the structure. Fans of all shapes, sizes, ages, colours and genders would turn up from all around the world, visibly distraught about their idol's death. Celebrities and musicians such as Chris Rock, Eddie Murphy, Jimmy Fallon, Aretha Franklin, Oprah Winfrey, Justin Timberlake, Stevie Wonder and politicians including Barack Obama also paid their respects to Prince and his contribution to music with tweets, videos and speeches while cities around America and the world paid tribute by lighting bridges, monuments, and buildings purple. Three weeks after Prince's death, around 700 people had come forward, announcing that they were distant relatives of Prince in order to obtain his royalties. His younger sister Tika opened a probate case five days after his death, stating that no will had been discovered. Tika and Prince's half-brothers and sisters are still waiting to this day to receive any royalties from Prince's estate. The Bremer Trust Bank would take temporary control over his estimated 200 to 300 million estate, where they drilled open Prince's private vault full of his rare works. Prince was cremated and placed in a custom 3D urn in the shape of Paisley Park which was later placed on display in October 2016 at the entrance to Paisley Park when the estate opened as a museum celebrating the life and achievements of the Prince of Funk. Paisley Park would become a museum open to the public the same year of his death. Administrators of Prince's estate moved quickly to sell off a number of buildings and properties Prince owned in the US and his beautiful property called the Turtle Tail in the Caribbean. Over time, the administrators and banks in charge of Prince's estate would release a number of unreleased material, while the copyright laws Prince had worked so hard to maintain over the years had sadly reduced, allowing streaming services such as Spotify and YouTube to obtain his music and music videos. A number of Prince's albums and tracks would re-enter the charts worldwide after his death sparking a new generation's interest in Prince and his music. In just seven days, 4.1 million copies of Prince's albums were sold, while rare tracks are expected to be released over the coming years, although it is believed that Prince had a plethora of unreleased and unheard tracks. He would later be inducted into the Rhythm and Blues Hall of Fame and would have murals painted of him around the world in his clothes and instruments placed on display. There would be a number of tribute concerts also held in his honour. Only after Prince's death would the public learn of the amount of charity work Prince had been involved in over his career. He managed to keep his work out of the media spotlight, choosing not to receive the praise so many other celebrities crave. Prince would often donate funds to causes such as animal rights, human rights and even people's medical bills, often doing this anonymously. Before his death, he was set to do so much more and seemed excited for future projects such as beginning work on a Netflix reality series relating to his life and the daily goings on at Paisley Park and began getting heavily invested on writing a number of books as he had started writing memoirs for his personal autobiography, The Beautiful Ones. But when he died, it was finished externally. Since Prince's passing, a number of albums featuring unreleased tracks, live versions, and re releases would come out, including Naked in the Summertime, Piano and a Microphone, the nineteen eighty three version, Originals, and finally, Camille was released. Prince has left his mark on R&B, funk and soul music and had a huge impact on a number of artists through his artistry, fashion and his music. Inspiring and mentoring, Alicia Keys, Gwen Stefani, Lady Gaga, Frank Ocean, Lizzo, Beck, Robin, Frank Ocean, D'Angelo, Bruno Mars, Cyndi Lauper, Sheryl Crow, Beyonce, Janelle Monet, Pharrell, Andre 3000, Justin Timberlake, Miguel. Rihanna, John Legend, Lenny Kravitz, Usher and The Weeknd, just to name a few. Today Prince's song Baltimore from the Hit and Run Phase 2 album would become a theme song for the Black Lives Matter movement as well as the track Mary Don't You Weep which featured on the 1983 piano and a microphone album. The song would inspire change and equality to all over the treatment over the lives of African Americans something that Prince was very passionate about. Prince wrote the song Baltimore in 2015, when a man by the name of Freddie Gray suspiciously died while in police custody. The two songs detailing the same issues from over 30 years apart, but still no change. Prince was a pioneer for attempting to bring differing cultures together and was very passionate about the hope of one day living in a world free of judgment. Prince will live on as an absolute legend of the music industry and be remembered for the bravery and courage he showed by challenging the record labels, standing for what he believed in and bringing his controversial, pioneering and unique music to the mainstream. Prince broke gender barriers as he strutted around in high heels, eyeliner and crop tops and still managed to get the ladies. He made it okay and cool to be different and mysterious. His musical mind was pure genius and his underrated ability to play a huge array of instruments, produce his own albums, and perform groundbreaking vocals is simply unlike any musician the world has ever seen. Not only is Prince one of the most recognisable voices of the 80s and 90s, his songwriting ability is second to none, producing mega-hits like Purple Rain, 1999, When Doves Cry, Cream, Manic Monday, Nothing Compares to You, Kiss, and Little Red Corvette just to name a few. Prince's ability to connect through his songwriting to a range of races, genders and sexualities can only be compared with the grades such as Elvis Presley and Michael Jackson. Prince was also creating something new and always willing to help upcoming artists achieve success. Prince lived a life full of ups and downs but rose to the heights he and the world could be proud of. Before discovering God and wanting to become a better version of himself, he spent a lot of his career bringing taboo subjects into the thoughts of the public and got them talking in healthy discussion. He had four number one albums in the US and three in Australia and had five number one singles in the US and even a successful film debut. He has sold a total of 100 million albums worldwide won 32 awards, has recorded over 600 songs and is now a Grammy and Rock and Roll Hall of Famer. Despite the loss of love and life, Prince soldiered on for as long as he could and no matter what, he kept pumping out more and more material for his fans as music and God were the only loves he had left in the end. His death was tragic and came as a huge shock to so many, but the positive impact he left behind is felt throughout his music and his legacy that will undoubtedly live on forever. okay thank you everyone for listening i really hope you enjoyed this final installment of lyrics of their life season one as much as i've enjoyed making it please make sure you like share rate subscribe and leave a positive review wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget if you would like to support the podcast by becoming a patron head to patreon to check out how you can keep this podcast going and sign up to one of three membership packages, starting at just $1 a month, which includes extra content and bonuses. Season 1 was researched, narrated, and produced by myself, Adam Hampton. Again, I hope you enjoyed that episode. That will be the final episode until I return with Season 2. Head to our Facebook page at Lyrics of Their Life Podcast to keep up to date with all the news of Season 2. I'm already looking forward to it, but until then, I'm your host Adam Hampton, and this is Lyrics of Their Life.